Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Here we go for another study of the resurrection from a full preterist perspective. Last time we dealt with that perpetual nagging question that futurists relentlessly pester us with, which is, why weren't the physical bodies of the saints raised out of their graves in AD 70? That study generated some excellent feedback from several listeners, some of whom I have not heard from in a long time. That is always nice to see old friends join us here on the podcast and share their feedback. This session, we will be dealing with the phrase, our body, which is found in Philippians 3, verse 21. This is one of the flagship texts used by collective body advocates to support their concept of the resurrection of a collective body in AD 70. Before we get into that study, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, who sent your Son to rescue us from eternal death and give us eternal life in your holy presence, Help us in this study of Philippians 3.21 to clearly discern your truth so that we can have full assurance of faith about what your word teaches about the resurrection and our afterlife. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Here's a text we're going to be dealing with, and you probably want to have your Bible open as we study through this. Uh, it's Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. So grab your Bible and... Here we go. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Now, before we deal with that text in detail, I want to give you a little bit of a historical background to my understanding of this text and how it developed over the years. I had the blessing, or is it the curse, of being on different sides of the fence regarding the resurrection issue at one time or another during my 38 years as a full preterist. So I understand where both views, the collective body view and the individual body view, are coming from and how they interpret the various resurrection texts within their respective paradigms. I was in close contact with Max King in the late 1970s and 1980s at the very time he was developing the collective body view and writing his big book about it, The Cross and the Parousia, which was published in 1987. I still remember sitting in Max King's living room back in 1978 and asking him, what text he based his collective body concept on. He immediately went to Philippians 3.21 as being the clearest reference to a collective body resurrection. I was surprised by Max King's assertion that the phrase, our lowly body, was referring to a collective body, the church. He noted that the word our is plural, while the word body is singular, thus referring to one collective body made up of a group of individuals. 
Max noted that Paul is using a plural possessive pronoun, our, with a singular noun, body, allegedly indicating that Paul is talking about a collective body being transformed. This is the flagship text of the collective body view. They rest their case on this plural pronoun and singular noun combination. They assert that this is talking about the church as a collective body being transformed or resurrected at the parousia, and that it cannot mean a group of living individuals each undergoing their own individual bodily changes, because Paul spoke Koine Greek fluently and would not have used this particular grammatical construction unless he intended to talk about a collective body. Now, that's the way Max King explained it to me. Now, I'd never heard anyone else before take that approach. I was not ready to accept it without much more careful grammatical and contextual analysis. I went back to my office and tore that passage apart in the Greek. I looked up all the similar verses that have both body and hour in them. I noticed that there were some passages which used this same construction in a collective sense, but also that there was a significant number of texts which used it in an individual sense. I looked at all the New Testament texts which have plural possessive pronouns modifying singular nouns to see if there were any of them that were speaking of individuals rather than a collective concept. I found several of them. Then I began to notice that we use this same way of talking in English also. I found that the New Testament writers often use this construction in connection with both individuals and collectives. That was confusing. Which is the correct sense that Paul was using here in Philippians 3.21? Was Paul talking about a collective body? Or was he simply referring to a group of saints there in Philippi in the first century, each of whom had their own individual body? I struggled with Max King's interpretation on this for several years. It always seemed forced to me, in spite of the seeming grammatical support for it. Since the Greek morphology could be interpreted either way, individually or collectively, it was hard to nail down decisively what it was trying to say. However, I knew that both interpretations could not be correct. Paul certainly was not teaching both individual and collective concepts in this text. It had to be one or the other. So I kept studying it. I knew that Philippians 3.21 is a key text, no matter what view of the resurrection we hold. So I was determined to finally get a handle on it. And I knew that it could only be decided by a careful re-examination of the context. Context is always king in difficult interpretations like this. And so usually, in fact, I would say almost always, the interpretation of an individual text can be determined fairly easily by looking at the context and the verses around it. During the first 15 years of my full preterist career, I leaned toward the collective body view, but always had nagging doubts about it, like this particular interpretation of Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. 
Then in 1990, I heard about the battle for the resurrection that was being fought between Norman Geisler and Murray Harris. I immediately bought Murray Harris's book, From Grave to Glory. I was intrigued by his individual body approach to the various resurrection texts, including Philippians 3.21. I slowly began backing away from the collective body view after that. Then in 1993, just three years later, Max King was invited to present his collective body view to a dozen or so Reformed theologians in Orlando for their evaluation. And I have the recordings of those presentations. It's called the Covenant Eschatology Symposium. If you look on our website, they're listed there. There's 24 different tracks to that set of recordings. So if you'd like to get them, uh, they're available on the website. Covenant Eschatology Symposium. But Max presented his collective body view to these dozen or so Reformed theologians, and then they interacted with it. Two of the Reformed theologians there at that symposium presented papers that strongly challenged Max King's collective body view. Uh, That was Robert Strimple and Charles Hill. Strimple analyzed Max's view from an exegetical and redemptive perspective, while Charles Hill used a historical and theological approach. Both did a fair job of pointing out the weaknesses that they perceived in all full preterist explanations of the resurrection, but especially focused their main critique on Max King's collective body view. Those two papers were expanded and republished in Keith Matheson's critique book entitled, When Shall These Things Be?, which was published in 2004. After listening to their 1993 speeches by Dr. Strimple and Charles Hill, I was stunned. They verbalized some of the same problems that I was having with the collective body view. That is when I finally backed away from it permanently. Well, what do we call this particular grammatical construction that we're looking at here in Philippians 3.21, this plural possessive pronoun plus a singular noun? What do we call that particular construction? Well, I ask a full preterist Greek scholar, Dr. David Warren, who is now a professor at Faulkner University in Montgomery, Alabama, I ask him what the Greek grammars call this phenomena when the first-person plural possessive pronoun our is used with the singular noun body. And here is his reply. You should look in the index of the grammar of your choice under the head term number. Usually you will find this subject under number or concord agreement. And then under the exceptions that follow. For Robertson's large grammar, see pages 403 through 409. For Bloss and De Bruner, see pages 73 through 76. For Daniel Wallace, see pages 399 through 406. Robertson calls these exceptions idiomatic plurals or idiomatic singulars. Well, let's take a closer look now at this particular grammatical construction, the plural possessive pronoun, our, modifying the singular noun, body, like we see here in Philippians 3.21 and its context. We need to have our Bibles open to Philippians 3.21 as we study the context. 
We are trying to discover which kind of body was transformed at the parousia. Was Paul talking about a collective body or individual bodies being transformed? Here in Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21, note what verse 21 says. Jesus will transform our lowly body into conformity with his glorious body. This is talking about a bodily change which would occur at the parousia. Apostle Paul had already taught this same bodily change idea in his two letters to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 through 54 and 2 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 4, both of which were written six years earlier before this letter to the Philippians in A.D. 57-58, just before Paul was arrested and sent to Rome. This letter to the Philippians was written six years later in AD 63, just before Paul was released from his imprisonment in Rome. So this concept of bodily change or bodily transformation was not new. Paul had already been teaching it for at least six years by the time he wrote here in Philippians 3.21. This kind of bodily change is the same idea we find also in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, where John says that when Christ appeared at his parousia, the living saints would become like him. So Paul is not the only one who taught a bodily change or transformation at the parousia. Now, before looking more closely at Philippians 3.21, we need to survey the preceding context to see if it offers any clues about what kind of body Paul is talking about here. Two verses beforehand will suffice for now. Notice verses 19 and 20 in particular, which say, "...whose end is destruction, whose God is the belly." and whose glory is in their shame, who the things on earth are minding. For our citizenship is in the heavens, whence also a Savior we await, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that was the Young's literal translation, so you can see why it's a little rough. It's very clear here the plural and singular uses that Paul is making in these texts. Now let's go back through that again. And I'll point out the plural and singular combinations here in these two verses preceding verse 21. Notice it says, whose, which is plural, end, which is singular, is destruction, whose, which is plural, God, which is singular, is the belly, which is singular, and whose, plural, glory, singular, is in their, plural, shame, singular. Not just once, twice, or three times, but five times in the preceding two verses, Paul uses a plural possessive pronoun with a singular noun. That is the same construction we're looking at in verse 21. Yet here in verse 19 and 20, it is easy to see that Paul is using this language in an individual sense, not in a collective sense. Notice that each of the whos, which is plural, would have their own end, singular, their own belly, singular, their own glory, singular, and their own shame, singular. It was not a collective ownership of those things. Each of the individuals in that group 
had their own end God glory and shame. Verse 20 is even clearer when it says, our citizenship. Each of the individual saints were citizens of the heavenly kingdom. It was not just the collective body that was a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. It was each of the individual saints who were citizens of that heavenly kingdom. Now, you may think that's a kind of uh, obvious point here, but we need to be real obvious because the collective body guys just don't see this. Even in the two verses right beforehand, they miss it. So we need to point it out and make it real obvious that Paul is talking about a group of individuals, each of whom had their own citizenship and their own end, their own God, their own glory, and their own shame. And in verse 21, of course, it's talking about each of those individual saints having their own individual body, which would be transformed at the parousia. But here in verses 19 and 20 is the same construction that we find in verse 21, a plural possessive pronoun used with a singular noun referring to a group of individuals, each of whom possess one of the items that are mentioned, not just a share in a collective ownership of those items. Now, do you catch the power of that? Five times in the preceding two verses, Paul used this same construction in an individual sense. That's pretty devastating to the collective body interpretation of Philippians 3.21. But wait, there's more. Notice in the subsequent context after Philippians 3.21, at Philippians 4 verse 5, that it says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is near. The your here in Philippians 4 verse 5 is plural, while the gentleness is singular. Yet each of the individuals in the group that Paul is addressing here were exhorted to have a gentle spirit. It wasn't just the collective body that was supposed to have a gentle spirit. It was each of the individuals. And notice it's that same construction, a plural possessive pronoun used with a singular noun. So we got five instances in the two verses before Philippians 3.21 and another instance in the next chapter, verse 5, using that same construction about individuals. Over a decade ago, Walt Hibbard was asked to comment on Philippians 3.21 and his argument for an individual application of it, and he draws his individual application of this text from the surrounding context. Here's what he had to say about the context of Philippians 3.21. Walt said, I believe that Paul is talking about individual body resurrection, not a corporate or collective resurrection. Here is my thinking. The context in verses 17 through 19 seems to be speaking of individual people. For example, the phrase in verse 18, for many walk, and in verse 17, he points out those who so walk as referring to individuals, not a composite group. It is focused, it seems to me, on individuals. Then in verse 20, Paul strikes a contrast between those people mentioned in verses 17 through 19 by the words, our citizenship is in heaven. 
he is including himself in with a group of faithful servants of Christ, real people who together are eagerly waiting for the coming of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, these are individuals. And in verse 21, it is the same group as mentioned in verse 20 who will experience a transformation of their lowly bodies in order to conform them to his glorious body. I thought that was pretty good comments on the contextual analysis here by Walt Hibbard. It's not hard to find several more examples of this grammatical construction in context where it is clearly talking about each individual in a group having their own individual copy of this singular item. Using my computer Bible search program, I was able to find several examples of this very construction. Paul used this idiomatic expression the most, but there were others who used it as well. Notice the words in each of these verses that I have put in red type. Look up these texts in your Bible and study their surrounding verses to feel the force of this contextual argument that we're making here. There are more texts like these, but these are some of the clearest and easiest to see. The first is Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Now keep in mind that this is Jesus speaking, and he's using this grammatical construction Those who wish to say that it's not correct grammatical usage, uh, their quibble is with Jesus and Paul and James and John, who all four use this construction in their speech. Notice what Jesus says. Blessed are you when men hate you, plural, and ostracize you, plural, and cast insults at you, plural, and spurn your, plural, name, singular, as evil, for the sake of the Son of Man. So Jesus uses that plural possessive pronoun with a singular noun construction here in Luke chapter 6, verse 22. There are several more instances of it here in Paul's writings. In Romans chapter 6, verse 6, it says, Knowing this, that our, plural, old self, singular, was crucified with him, that our, plural, body, singular, of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Now, very clearly, Paul is talking about individuals who each had a body which were in slavery to sin, and that body of sin had to be done away with. Speaking individually here, not collectively. It wasn't a collective body of sin that had to be done away with. It was an individual body that had to be done away with so that they would no longer be slaves to sin. Each of those individuals was being held in bondage to sin. But because they had been crucified with Christ, they were able to be rid of that body of sin that each of those individuals had. Now, we're belaboring the point, but I want to make sure we get the point here that this construction is not always and only used of a collective body. It's used of individuals as well in a number of texts, and we'll look at a bunch of them here. Let's go to Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 26. In these 11 verses here, this construction is used three times. First, in Romans 8, verse 16, 
Notice it says, the Spirit himself testifies with our, plural, Spirit, singular, that we are children of God. And then in verse 23, Romans eight twenty-three, Paul says, And not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, this is a text which the collective body guys claim is a proof text for their collective body application. Notice it uses that same phrase, our body, that is found in Philippians 3.21. And therefore, they use those two verses to teach their collective body view. But notice, Paul here in verse 23 is clearly talking about individuals. He talks about ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. So each of those individuals, ourselves, plural, each of those individuals had the first fruits of the Spirit. It's not talking about a collective body having the first fruits. It's talking about individual saints having those first fruits in themselves. Even when we ourselves, plural, notice that ourselves there is is a group of individuals groaning within themselves. It wasn't a collective body groaning. It was a bunch of individuals groaning within themselves, waiting eagerly for their adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Now, notice that our adoption is also that plural singular construction as well as our body. So you got two uses of that construction right here in verse 23, both of which are clearly in the context speaking of individuals and not of a collective body. But to make that even more clear, By looking at the context here in verse 16 and verse 26, we can see that it has to be speaking of individuals having their own body and not a collective body uh, because of what it says here in verse 26 also. Notice it says, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, question, is it each of those individuals having weakness and the Spirit is in each of those individuals helping them in their weakness? Or is it talking about the Spirit of God in a collective body helping that collective body with its weakness? You can see how ridiculous it gets when we try to make this into a collective body application. It just doesn't make any sense. And so here in the context of Romans 8.23, on both sides of it, verse 16 and verse 26, we have very clear individual applications of this very construction. And so it doesn't take rocket science to figure out that Verse 23 must also be talking about individual application of the body when it says our body here. It's not talking about a collective. It's talking about each of the individuals having their own body in verse 23. Now let's move on here to 1 Corinthians 15 where he uses this construction again there in verse 14. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, 
your faith also is vain. Now, there's two more plural singular combinations here in this text. Our preaching and your faith. The our and the your are plural, and the preaching and the faith is singular. But it's obviously talking about individuals who had faith, your faith, and yet the your is plural and the faith is singular. But it's obviously talking about individuals there. And so our preaching is speaking of Paul and his fellow co-workers who had preached to them there at Corinth. And it's not talking about their collective preaching. It's talking about them individually preaching to those saints there at Corinth. They didn't all speak in unison as a collective body. They spoke as individuals, separately, individually in their preaching. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, it says, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our, plural, conscience, singular, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you. Now, notice here, Paul is talking about himself and his co-workers in the way they conducted themselves in front of the Corinthians. And he's talking about the testimony of our, plural, conscience, singular. Now, question. We know who he's referring to here. Those co-workers and Paul have only one collective conscience? Or did each of those individuals have their own individual conscience? Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our, plural, body, singular. Now, question. In the context, he's talking to individuals there at Corinth. He's talking about himself and his apostolic band of co-workers as well in the persecution there that they were always carrying about in their own individual bodies the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in their individual bodies as well. It's very clear in the context what he's talking about, the persecution there and how that was carrying around in their body the effect of that persecution because it was the same kind of dying that Jesus had died in his persecution and death on the cross. And they were suffering that persecution in their own individual bodies so that the life of Christ would also be manifested in their individual bodies at the parousia. Again, we see an an individual body application here in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 10. In the context, it's very clear that he's referring to each of those individuals having their own body. And there's more. I mean, I've got a whole bunch of these texts here, and I don't know if we have the time to go through all of them. Uh, I would encourage you to get the uh, PDF lesson outline so that you'll have all these. I do want to deal with a couple of them here. Let's look down here in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23. It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, plural, entirely, and may your, plural, spirit, singular, and soul, 
singular, and body singular be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, question. We know in the context he's talking to the Thessalonian saints there, and he's saying to those saints there, may your spirit, soul, and body be preserved complete. Now, is he speaking to them as a collective group, as a church, and saying that their their collective church's spirit and collective church's soul and collective church body would be preserved complete? Or is he talking to individuals and wishing and hoping and praying that their own individual spirit and individual soul and individual body would be preserved complete? I mean, the context is really clear. And yet it's got this construction used, what, three different times right here. The plural and singular construction. Okay, uh, there's more. James chapter 3, verse 3, and James 3, verse 6 uses this same construction as well, where it talks about their entire body, their plural, entire body, singular. And James 3, verse 6 says, our plural life, singular. Same construction. Yet it's very clearly speaking of individuals, not a collective body. Well, can you spot any text which use the singular noun as a collective ownership in all these texts that I have just listed here for us? Do you see any of them which refer to that singular noun as a collective ownership versus those which use it as an individual ownership? Well, I didn't see any collective body applications there. There might have been some, but uh, several of those texts that we just looked at are claimed as collective body applications by the collective body folks, especially Romans chapter 8, verse 23, and, of course, Philippians 3.21. But when they do that, they're ignoring all the different usage that we've listed here in these various texts. And in Romans 8 especially, we have seen that it has in the context two other uses which are very clearly individual. So none of those texts that we just listed has to be understood collectively. All of them can just as easily be understood in an individual sense. And in Romans chapter 8, of course, we notice that verses before and after verse 23 have this same construction used in them where it's clearly talking about individuals. And so the collective body advocates who claim that Romans 8.23 is a collective body usage are ignoring the two similar usages in the context before and after verse 23. The other two uses in verse 16 and 26 are clearly referring to individuals who each had the spirit within them, who testified with their individual spirits and helped their individual weaknesses. So if the two similar constructions on either side of verse 23 are clearly individual applications, it means that Romans 8.23 is most likely an individual application as well. Certainly that possibility has to be left open. Uh, It can never be proven that it's a collective body only application, especially since 
just 12 verses earlier in the context, verse 11 has the construction, your, plural, mortal bodies, plural, which is using bodies in the plural. And that's here in the context. Just 12 verses earlier, he uses your bodies. So it's very clear that verse 23 is referring back to verse 11, which has the plural construction there for bodies. Note the plural possessive pronoun used with a plural bodies here in verse 11, Romans 8 verse 11. Here there is no doubt in verse 11 that Paul is talking about individual bodies because he uses the plural, no question about it. Each of those individuals had their own body. It was not a collective body in verse 11, for sure. With verse 11, in the context, it becomes extremely tenuous to claim, as the collective body guys do, that verse 23 is used in a collective sense. That would make verse 23 out of sync with its context. Verses 11, verse 16, and verse 26. Well, the various commentaries on Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21, explain the usage of body, singular, with the plural possessive pronoun our, as a common grammatical form for all biblical writers, especially Apostle Paul. And as we will notice shortly, Jesus, James, and John also used this construction. It was also common in the external Koine Greek writings of the first century. This cast even more doubt upon the collective body argument here in Philippians 3.21 by showing that it can easily be talking about each individual in the group, our, having his own individual body, singular. There is nothing about this grammatical construction which demands a collective body application in Philippians 3.21. It could just as easily be interpreted as an individual application. There are too many exceptions to the rule, especially right here in the context. So it appears that this text is another one of those exceptions to the general rule that adjectives agree in number with their modified nouns. That's the general rule but there's lots of exceptions, as we've seen. And so there's no way the collective body guys can demand that it can only be a collective body application here because there are numerous exceptions that show otherwise. And this could very well be one of those exceptions. In my book, Expectations Demand a First Century Rapture, I show that this text, Philippians 3.21, is referring to the same bodily change that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 54, as well as the same putting on of immortality that he mentions in both 1 Corinthians 15, verses 52 through 54, and 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 4 as well as the redemption of the body that he mentions in Romans 8.23. So this transformation of our lowly body is the same bodily change that Paul has mentioned elsewhere. When those who lived and remained until the parousia were caught up to meet the Lord in the air, 
their physical bodies were transformed and changed to be like him. 1 John 3 verse 2. Philippians 3.21 is merely another reference to that same bodily change or transformation that was already taught by Paul in these other texts that we've looked at. In Parker Vall's speech at our 2011 Garrettsville Preterist Seminar, he commented on the meaning of Philippians 3.21. We might note that Parker Vall is a full preterist with an earned master's degree in theology who also writes articles for the Fulfill magazine. His column there is called the Greek Column. He's a very fluent in Koine Greek, has done some Bible translation work, and so he knows his Greek. His lesson at the seminar was on the topic of bodily change, as taught in four particular texts, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 54, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 4, Philippians 3, 21, and 1 John 3, verse 2. Here is what he said about Philippians 3, 21. He quotes the text first, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Then he says, This text combines many of the elements from all of the previous text we have looked at, namely, that the bodies of the saints to whom Paul was writing were expected to be transformed to become like Christ's body when he arrived from his heavenly abode as Savior. This idea is similar to what we see in 1 John 3 verse 2, but is also supported in 1 Corinthians 15. The verb describing the transformation in this passage is different than our other verses, metaschematizo. This verb focuses on the idea of an outer change so that the inner person remains intact. This harmonizes with the usage in our 2 Corinthians 5 text where Paul, in using the verb clothe upon, ep in duo, to describe the bodily change, is emphasizing the continuity of the inner person between those two bodies. Also, we noted in this passage that this activity is something that the Lord will himself do as an act of his power, and that he does these things in the heavenly realm where his body of glory resides. There is a grammatical issue with some translations of verse 21. Many translations translate this as our lowly body, such as in the English Standard Version, or the body of our humble estate in the New American Standard. But I submit that the translations our weak mortal bodies of the New Living Translation or these humble bodies of ours in the Net Bible are more accurate in that they properly recognize that the normal way a Greek would have wanted to emphasize individual items within a group would be to combine the singular form of the item with the plural form of the group. So in English, we should say our bodies instead of our body. This is a very common 
grammatical construction in the New Testament. And there are many examples where this is the only way the construction makes sense. So it is quite clear that Paul is talking about the particular bodies of the individuals within the Philippian church. This idea is further supported when we look back at the discussion in Philippians 2, verses 8 through 9, where Paul is talking about Christ moving from lowliness into glory, using those same Greek words, so that in context, Christ then becomes a prototype for any of the individual Philippians who similarly choose to humble themselves, indicating what they might expect as a result of their humility. Well, that's a really interesting uh, comparison that Parker Vall makes between Philippians 2, verses 8 through 9, and our text here in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. I had not noticed that before, and I would appreciate him pointing that out. Very interesting. It uses the same Greek words for humble that we find here in Philippians 3.21, suggesting indeed that there is a comparison with that earlier statement in Philippians chapter 2. And the comparison in Philippians 2 is definitely talking about individual bodies, the individual body of Jesus. And so that's applied to those individual bodies of the Philippian saints there in chapter 3. Parker Vall has shown in those four texts, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 through 54, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 4, Philippians 3, verse 21, and 1 John 3, verse 2, that the pre-70 saints who lived and remained until the parousia in AD 70 were expecting to experience a change of their individual bodies from mortality to immortality. Notice that Philippians 3.21 said that their lowly bodies would be transformed to be like or in conformity with Christ's glorious body. That sounds like what 1 John 3 verse 2 said would happen at the parousia. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Do you catch the similarity of 1 John 3, verse 2, and Philippians 3:21. Back in the days, 2003, when Sam Frost was a full preterist, and when he was using Philippians 3:21 as an example of a collective body proof text, there were a couple of futurist critics who challenged Sam Frost. Their names are Tim Warner and Roger Samsell. And here is the argumentation that they used against Sam Frost's collective body application of Philippians 3, verse 21. Tim Warner says, Some preterists typically claim that the use of the singular body in Philippians 3, 21, with the plural personal pronoun, our, indicates Paul was referring to the collective body of believers, our plural being all believers, and body singular being the collective whole. This explanation, however, cannot be correct on two counts. First, while body is sometimes used metaphorically in reference to the church, it is always Christ's body, never our body. Further, vile body here 
cannot refer to the church prior to A.D. 70 because elsewhere Paul calls the pre-A.D. 70 church Christ's body, and Christ's body is not vile. The only alternative is that Paul was referring to the individual body of flesh. Secondly, the preterist explanation of the collective body view is not grammatically correct. The use of the singular body with the plural genitive personal pronoun, our, does not mean a collective body. Rather, it is intended to emphasize the application to each and every body within its target's audience. Consider the following passage, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8-11. through 11. We, plural, are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We, plural, are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body, singular, the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in our, plural, body, singular. For we, plural, which live, are always delivered over are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our, plural, mortal flesh, singular. These last two words, our body, in verse 10, in Greek, are to somati hemon. To is the definite article. Somati is the word body. It is singular in this case. Hamon is the first-person plural genitive personal pronoun, our. Literally, it is the body belonging to us. But notice that the context clearly refers to Paul and his companions' physical sufferings for the sake of Christ. Body, singular here, is used of each of their bodies, not a collective body of people. In Philippians 3.21, it is exactly the same. Tosoma, the body, hemon, belonging to us. This construction, with the use of the definite article, refers to each and every body, singular, of us, plural. It does not refer to a single body, of which all are a part. Here is an example from Jesus himself. Matthew 6, verse 25 Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your plural life, singular, what ye plural shall eat, or what ye plural shall drink, nor yet for your plural body, singular, what ye plural shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Since Jesus did not expect the collective church to wear clothes, He obviously was referring to each and every one in his target audience. In the Greek, Jesus said, Tosomati humon, the body of yours. The only difference here is Jesus used the second person pronoun, your, not including himself, while Paul used the first person pronoun, our, including himself. The important point being that The singular body with the definite article combined with the plural personal pronoun, your or our, 
does not refer to a collective body consisting of many individuals, but to each and every body belonging to each of those included in the personal pronoun. It is the difference between each and all. Here is another example from Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 through 20, which reads, Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, singular. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body, singular. What? Know you not that your, plural, body, singular, is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, plural, which ye, plural, have of God, and ye, plural, are not your own. For ye, plural, are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your plural body, singular, and in your plural spirit, singular, which are God's. Here is another example. And the very God of peace sanctify you, plural, holy. And I pray, God, your plural, whole spirit, singular, and soul, singular, and body, singular, be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. As is very obvious, Paul, speaking collectively to the whole church, uses plural personal pronouns. Yet because his words are meant to be individually applied, he also speaks to each and every one using singular nouns like body, soul, and spirit. Therefore, It is obvious that in Philippians 3.21, Paul does not mean that the vile body is a collective body of people. He uses the term precisely as in the above examples, speaking to the whole group collectively about each and every one of them and their own individual body. It is true that sometimes Paul uses a plural noun, when referring to each of their bodies or spirits, etc. But it seems that Paul typically chose to use the singular noun when he wanted to emphasize the certainness of application to each and every individual in his audience. When he merely wanted to refer to the whole group without such specific emphasis, he used the plural noun. For more examples of plural genitive personal pronouns with singular nouns, look at this list of texts. And I'm not going to read those off, but uh, they're here in the lesson outline. There's a whole bunch of them. He says, These passages use the same kind of construction as Philippians 3.21, yet in each case it is obvious that the singular noun applies to each and every person within his target audience. In none of them does he use the singular noun to refer to the whole collective group. Well, those were some really good comments from Tim Warner. I want to read some follow-up comments that were made by a friend of his named Roger Samsell. And here's what he said in response or in reply to Tim Warner's reasoning. He says, your reasoning on the plural personal possessive pronouns with a singular body is very correct in my opinion. 
and the examples you cited for comparison are overwhelming evidence to support your conclusion. I noticed something else when I was going over the passages you cited. Philippians 3.21 is translated this way in Young's literal translation, who shall transform the body of our humiliation to its becoming conformed to the body of his glory. What does our vile body, our lowly body, or the body of our humiliation mean? The word humiliation is the noun form of the verb found in Philippians 2, verse 8. He humbled himself. Speaking of Christ emptying of himself to take upon himself human flesh. It does not mean vile in the sense of wicked. It means lowly, of low rank, and humble. In Philippians 2, verse 8, it expressly refers to Christ taking upon himself human form, and became obedient to the point of physical death. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance As a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Roger Samsell goes on to say, Just as the body of his humiliation was exalted, so Paul says within the context of the same book of Philippians, the body of our humiliation will also be transformed to its becoming conformed to his glorified body. This is critical since he humbled himself, in Philippians 2 verse 8, refers to Christ taking on human flesh. Then our humiliation, in Philippians 3.21, clearly refers to our physical humanity, not some status of a collective body of the church. It means our flesh and blood body that is subject to death. This being the case, There is no getting around the fact that our bodies being conformed to the body of his glory must find its explanation in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Romans 6 verse 9. Well, that was some pretty good comments. Uh, I think he showed pretty conclusively that Philippians 3.21 is a reference back to the same kind of humiliation of Christ's body and exaltation and glorification of Christ's body that is referred to in Philippians chapter 2. I think that's a pretty strong argument, and I don't see how anyone could uh, nullify that by merely asserting that Philippians 3.21 has to be 
a collective body application because of that grammatical construction that it uses of a plural personal pronoun with a singular body. Well, in conclusion, I believe we have very effectively shown through grammatical and contextual analysis, as well as looking at similar texts throughout the New Testament, that the collective body application of Philippians 3.21 simply cannot be maintained. It depends on the universal application of the grammatical rule for adjectives to match the number of the nouns that they modify in every case with no exceptions. But as we have seen, there are many exceptions to that rule. Jesus, Paul, James, and John all use this grammatical construction in their teaching, which was quite often applied to individuals and not to a collective group. This means that the bodily transformation that Paul is alluding to here in Philippians 3.21 is not talking about the collective body of the church being raised out of dead Judaism at the parousia. Instead, it is talking about individual saints having their lowly mortal bodies changed into glorious immortal bodies like Christ has in heaven now. According to Paul here in Philippians 3.21, this bodily transformation or change was supposed to occur at the parousia, not years later when they died. And it is obviously talking about the living and remaining saints since the ones getting this bodily transformation were still in their lowly bodies. They were not dead and disembodied, so it cannot be talking about dead folks being raised. It's talking about living folks having their bodies changed. It's not talking about a resurrection of dead, disembodied saints. These saints that are under consideration here still had their old bodies on, and their old, lowly bodies were going to be transformed to be like Christ's glorious body at His coming from the heavens, at His parousia. Another point that we do not want to miss here is that the living saints did not have both kinds of bodies at the same time. They were not a dynamic duo. Their old, lowly, physical bodies were transformed or changed into new, glorious, spiritual bodies so that they only had one kind of body at a time. According to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, that change occurred instantly in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump so that there was no overlap of the two bodies. There was no moment when they had both kinds of bodies at the same time. The change from one to the other was instantaneous at the parousia. It was not a long, drawn-out process over a period of days, weeks, or years. And according to Philippians 3, 20 and 21, that bodily transformation of the living saints would occur at the time of Christ's return from heaven, not years later when those living saints finally died. Well, I, I think that really helps us understand what this transformation of their bodies was all about. And it shows that it was not just a reception of 
immortality in some kind of a metaphysical sense at 70 AD, like some people are alleging. Instead, it's talking about a change of their lowly bodies, their humble bodies, their physical bodies at the parousia. Not years later when they died, but at the parousia, they would get a bodily change of their physical bodies into glorified spiritual immortal bodies at Christ's return. And so what happened to those folks? Did they remain in the visible realm after their bodies were changed into immortal bodies? Or did they go to be with Christ? Were they raptured out of there after their bodies were changed? I think you see the point that I'm trying to make here. There's a lot more going on in Philippians 3.21 than our collective body brothers would like to admit. And misunderstanding the collective body idea is not the only problem. They misunderstand the nature of this change of the living. They want to say that this is a resurrection of the dead, but it couldn't be because these folks here in Philippians 3.21 have bodies. They're not disembodied dead folks. They are living people that have their bodies, and those bodies are going to be changed. And that change was to occur at the parousia, not years later when they finally died. Well, I think that'll just about wrap it up for this session. I hope that you understood all of this. If not, be sure to send me an email and ask for more clarification on it. I'd be happy to do that. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now, where we study the past to shape a better future.